Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hello and welcome to another episode of FNS Unplugged. My name is Pietro Bordletto, media editor for FNS Reports. And as always, I'm joined by my two co-media editors at FNS Science and Reviews, Dr. Blake Evans and Dr. Dalen James. Dalen and Blake, how are you guys? I'm doing great, Pietro. How about yourself? It's pretty good. Coming back from vacation, two months left to fellowship. There's a lot to look forward to. Blake, are you a board certified REI yet or not yet? Well, I'm still waiting. Thanks for incessantly leaving me hanging out to drive and letting everyone know I'm waiting for my results. I appreciate that. So next month when we record the next episode, we'll make sure that we introduce you as a board eligible still. Um, and <laughs> wow. a certified REI. That, that stings a little bit. Yeah, well, that's okay. We're here to talk about science, less about you. Um, today, we're joined by a very special guest. Um, in As you guys know, the format of this uh, podcast is that we each bring an article from our respective journals to discuss with you. And when we read something that really captures our attention, imagination, and we think it'd be great to just hear from the source directly, we try to invite the author of the paper to join us. And Dalen has a paper that he is bringing today to discuss, and we have the privilege of having the first author of the paper with us. Dalen, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the paper and who you bring it on? Absolutely. Very excited about this one from the lab of uh, Ryan Flanagan, who was a fellow here, incidentally, at Wild Cornell, and is now at the University of British Columbia. We have research assistant Megan Robinson, who just published a study in FNS Science entitled Using Clinically Derived Human Tissue to Three-Dimensionally Bioprint Personalized Testicular Tubules for In Vitro Culturing, a First Report. Welcome to the show, Megan. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting us. We're really excited to share this work. Well, the excitement's on our end. This is really tremendous work. Just to provide a a brief and simplified, and I want to emphasize simplified overview of the study, you guys really should have a look for yourself. Uh, You used 3D bioprinting to generate tubular structures akin to the seminiferous tubule from cells, and not just any cells, but those taken from the testis biopsy of a 31-year-old patient with non-obstructive azospermia. And, uh, and here's the key, you showed that these ordered structures, the ones that were kind of bioprinted, were superior to spontaneously forming organoid equivalents. So roughly half of all infertility can be attributed to male factor, as we know, and we're going to cover again, uh, I think in Blake's story, he's going to come around to that. The most severe form of which is non-obstructive azospermia, currently microtessi or extraction of sperm from the testis is one of the best or probably the best intervention for many of these patients and can recover competent sperm for ICSI. Is bioprinting like an alternative approach for this class of patients or is it serving a completely different group? We're hoping it will be an approach in the very beginning stages, but bioprinting has the advantage over IVS in that you have the opportunity to correct some of the issues that the patient's tissue has in vivo, in vitro. So we're hoping that it will be an alternative that can hopefully improve the efficiency of IVF. 
Hmm. And of course, I mean, there's this idea of in the case of the patients, you can't recover any sperm. There is often the possibility of recovering spermatogonial stem cells, if I understand correctly. And when I was a postdoc, we used to transplant these spermatogonial stem cells or SSCs back into mouse testis. And it was really amazing, fascinating, beautiful images uh, of the SSCs colonizing the seminiferous tubules uh, of the host animals. Um, and the reason we were able to do that, of course, is because mouse spermatogonia are amenable to in vitro culture and expansion while retaining their stemness. But uh, similar efforts that we made, and I think others with human, this was, of course, 15 years ago now, a total you know, generation at this point in science, our efforts stalled. Do you think we've made significant progress on this front? And are there other viable options for preservation of fertility in, for example, prepubertal males who aren't able to ejaculate and generate sperm? That's a really good question. So a big part of this was, in fact, that we were hoping to build a sort of in vitro bioreactor such that we could take uh, prepubertal patients, spermatogonia, and implant them into perhaps a a tissue created from a mature donor with healthy tissue, and recreate the sperm in vitro um, for IVF in a safe way. Uh, another issue with implanting spermatogonia from these uh, cancer survivors is that there's no guarantee that the cancer is not still present, so it's considered unsafe at the moment, whereas growing them in vitro sort of bypasses that and allows us to determine whether or not it's fully safe or simply choose the exact cells needed for IVF with obviously other safety checkpoints along the way. I think it's really exciting. People are still working on that and working on ways to mature the full tissue in vitro without even rebuilding it through a process like 3D printing. But another avenue that we're exploring for, I guess you could say the same outcome would be to take induced pluripotent stem cell direct tissues, which are usually blood or fibroblasts from the adults reprogrammed into an embryonic stem cell state, and then regenerate the tissue such that it is from the patients and use that to regenerate our 3D prints, the testes. And then we can use the spermatogonia from the patients in that tissue to ideally recreate everything in vitro. Obviously, that's a bit of a ways off, but that's one of the directions we've sort of started to take. Yeah, and for me, that was what was so exciting about this paper and your entire body of work. It seems like you're cobbling together this toolkit for generating all the constituents of the testis, or at least the spermatogonia, and generating an in vitro culture system there that can bypass disease, as you mentioned, in the case of cancer, and also maybe even create uh, gametes de novo from patients who have zero sperm or spermatogonia through an induced uh, pluripotent stem cell method. And you published uh, or posted a few papers, a raft of papers on the bioarchive uh, approaching a year ago now. One was novel media formulation that enabled in vitro expansion of spermatogonial stem cells. And then also there were two studies showing that you could generate testicular-like and myoid-like cells from these induced pluripotent stem cells. So as I said, it seems like you're trying to generate this kit 
for generating patient-specific sperm wholesale. You said there's some ways to go. What do you think are the major obstacles, you know, bypassing the regulatory stuff, just technically? What are the major obstacles standing in the way? And assuming that we get there, do you think that the application of gametes uh, that are initially derived from pluripotent stem cells in culture will ultimately be applied to treat fertility in real-life patients? Why or why not? To answer your first question, the major technical issue we're facing right now is getting them to reorganize correctly into your tubular and interstitial sort of supporting compartments. Because the seminiferous tubule is a barrier-type tissue, recreating that is our first goal. We're certain that the complexity of that architecture is sort of key to recreating sperm, healthy sperm. And 3D printing allows us to do that basically on a real size tissue scale, which is why we went for that. Our main goal right now is just working with the cells themselves and the bioinks and the components of all of those things to allow them to self-organize correctly, or even if we have to print them directly into the compartments. And to answer your second question, I do think that's possible for sure. There's actually been some groups that have cultured not from spermatogonia, but from round spermatids for secondary spermatocytes into round spermatids in vitro and use those successfully for IVF. So I don't see why not. Um, and I know that there's groups working on gametes in um, other countries, including America, that are facing some pretty great success, especially in mice. So I don't see why not. I think all these groups are working on these things. So eventually everything will come together as like everything else in science will get closer and closer. And I don't see why it couldn't be possible. So exciting. I mean, you can talk to the clinicians on the show. Uh, they probably get a lot of uh, questions about whether or not our patients can have their skin made into sperm or eggs. And of course, it is a long way off, and maybe there are some safety issues, but putting aside whether or not we should or can do it in humans, the possibilities are really endless beyond that. When you think about conservation of species, et cetera, like the capacity to be able to do this, I think is really an amazing innovation and important to the field. And your work in particular, Megan, I think is, is a major component of getting this system to work. Can, get the, the cells maybe to recapitulate the developmental processes to create the specialized cell types, gametes and supporting cells. But I think the real innovation here is having that scaffold. You know, we need to be able, as you said, to get them to organize. And the 3D printing is going to be a critical element of that. I mean, it's a, it's a meeting of minds between the engineers and biologists. We got to grow a thing, but we also got to make it. And, and you're one of the makers. So Thanks for uh, joining us and thanks for sharing uh, all your expertise and the work you've done. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All right. So it sounds like we're 3D printing a testicle and getting rid of male partners. That's pretty exciting stuff from FNS Science. Blake, tell us a little bit about what's going on in FNS Reviews this month. All right, I've got a paper for you called Sperm Redox Biology Challenges the Role of Antioxidants as a Treatment for Male Factor Infertility by first author Ettore Carapo and Maurizio Dettio. Uh, so in spite of inconclusive or negative outcomes from clinical studies, oral antioxidants are still largely prescribed to infertile men to improve sperm motility and or reduce sperm DNA damage. 
And this is on the basis of the assumption that it is an oxidative damage um, event and will be corrected by antioxidants. Makes sense, right? So the authors aim to challenge this view by examining the available experimental evidence and provide a summary of the mechanisms underlying the regulation of sperm motility. So the authors discuss mechanisms regulating sperm motility. They dive into pretty great detail with regard to its energy substrates and how they facilitate flagellar movement of the sperm, uh, for example. And uh, they also discuss that during epididymal transport, immature sperm acquire motility by interaction with various proteins and ATP production is increased. I encourage our listeners, as always, to go back and read this paper um, as they discuss in very great detail a lot of the mechanisms behind redox biology, but I'm just going to summarize an important portion of it here. So bear with me as I delve into some of the cellular physiology. ATP is required for hyperactivation of sperm motility, produced in the mitochondria and also necessary to generate reactive oxygen species, also known as ROS. ROS stimulate adenylate cyclase to produce CAMP from ATP, which activates protein kinase A to trigger phosphorylation that activates tyrosine kinase. And finally, this phosphorylates tyrosine residues of the fibrous sheath leading to sperm hyperactivated motility. So mitochondria are also involved in the process of the acrosome reaction to help a sperm fertilize an oocyte. So with all of this in mind, it begs the question, is there actually a role for antioxidants? The authors state that regulation of sperm motility may suffer several pathologic derangements, such as alterations of the flagellum, impaired function of the activating phosphatases and kinases, impaired release and function of the extracellular vesicles of either epididymal or prostatic origin, deranged calcium trafficking, and also infection or inflammation of the epididymis and male accessory glands. The authors also state that antioxidants do not correctly modulate these pathways. So what we do know about reactive oxygen species is that there can be too much of a good thing. So for example, higher ROS levels can lead to oxidative damage to sperm proteins, lipids, and DNA, including DNA fragmentation, and eventually resulting in male factor infertility. So antioxidants have been shown to balance ROS levels, and the whole rationale as to why taking antioxidants may help patients with low sperm motility. However, the authors challenge the current definition of oxidative stress as a lack of balancing antioxidant substrates, and they state that if ROS accumulates and cause damage, it's not because there's not enough reducing power to counteract, but because the ROS are released at times and at sites where cellular defenses are not necessarily able to react. And so lastly, the topic, I should say the hot topic of DNA fragmentation, which are defined as double strand breaks of the sperm nuclear DNA. In assisted reproductive technology, there's limited data to suggest that it's associated with reduced FERT rates, embryo quality, and pregnancy rates, and is considered the consequence of oxidative stress. The authors state it would be better correct to say that DNA fragmentation is associated with aggression from oxidative damage, whatever the origin might be. Mechanisms leading from sperm DNA oxidative damage to extensive DNA fragmentation are still subject of investigation and ROS independent mechanisms may be involved. They also argue that the positives of DNA fragmentation treatment are merely cosmetic. They mean that just decreasing the readout or the measurement of the DNA fragmentation assay without any real effect of the actual fertilization potential, whereas the negatives are likely to be clinically relevant. And by that, they mean because oral antioxidants actually can have real potential implications and they worsen 
NAD plus dependent energy repair or NAD plus deprivation in the sperm and may play a negative effect on DNA fragmentation and may worsen male fertility if prescribed in unselected patients. So they conclude that the occurrence of ROS and oxidative damages does not necessarily imply a shortage of antioxidant defenses and the possibility that a different problem is in place and should be considered. And although prescribing oral antioxidants is a simple and quite attractive treatment, the authors state that it's not supported by the evidence and should be reconsidered and that further data is needed to investigate how and where ROS are released. So guys, a lot of stuff to unpack here. There's again, a lot more in this paper that I'll, I, I do encourage the readers to go back and look at, but I feel like the jury is still out with regard to what to do with the results of DNA fragmentation tests. So what are your thoughts on this? Where do we go from here? I got to tell you, I loved reading this article because it's exactly what we need in our field. It's people challenging some long held assumptions and just going back to the basic physiology and asking the question, does this treatment make sense? Is it intending to do what we think it's supposed to do? And does that thing actually matter? And the point that the authors make about the potential for iatrogenic harm for these things that we think are pretty benign, right? It's a gel capsule once a day and you can buy it on Amazon and it shows up the next day if you're a prime member. Yeah, it may treat a number, but does it actually fix a problem? And are you inadvertently making something potentially worse? Um, I think is just a really elegant point to make in this article. I really love that part. I'll ask you, Blake, do you, do you recommend uh, antioxidants for your male partners? I typically don't. I usually defer that as also the authors were implying we should do. We kind of defer that to a select group of patients who are carefully evaluated. But my question always is, you know, you have this abnormal number and what do you do with it? You know, do they undergo varicocelectomy? Is that going to correct it? Uh, again, is this just changing the number, but not actually fixing anything ultimately? So are male infertility specialists will sometimes recommend this to patients depending on um, what they ultimately diagnose them with. But I will say I don't routinely just tell patients to take it because I don't really know if it's any doing any good. So I, I don't. We don't either at our center. And I think the reason is because we really, we intellectually believed in the microfluidic sperm selection system. We do have patients who have high DNA fragmentation using a microfluidic system to select sperm that we know are highly modal, more morphologically normal, and have lower DNA fragmentation, that's a way of A, treating the number, but two, I think there's data to suggest that in a select group of patients, there's some benefit there. But I think even beyond that, just from a workflow perspective, microfluidic sperm selection is pretty easy for the lab. Drop a aliquot of sperm on one end and check it 20, 30 minutes later, and it's done. Doesn't require a lot of centrifugation, changing out media, the kind of the traditional density gradient preparation that's labor intensive. So I understand that there's both the clinical draw to it where it may provide some benefit in select patients, but I think there's also potentially a, a workforce and workflow reason to use or at least evaluate some of these systems in your local practice. Definitely a lot less invasive than going into the testicle to find lower fragmented sperm. And I know Blake, you've published on this. Um, so I think it's, it's something that I think we're at the beginning of, and if we do it the right way, we'll get good data on to justify its use and not work backwards. Like we've done with so many things in our field where we have this great product and we're trying to find a use for it. Yeah. And Blake, you, you said it in your intro, uh, it's kind of like, yeah, makes sense. Can't hurt. 
and that's all that's the threshold you have to meet but you know you don't know that it can't hurt and particularly um, with these clinical studies such a challenge right there's so many points between spermatogenesis and fertilization much less live birth where things can go off the rails in, in an IVF cycle or ART cycle so with that in mind doing any kind of clinical tests where you see whether administration of antioxidants can affect the outcome seems kind of like a Hail Mary. There's too many, too many variables there. That's why I really liked the way this article created this uh, logical and mechanistic framework, explaining theoretically how these many ways of redox balance might affect current sperm competence and then excluding them. Um, because you know that, that I think is, is a scientific approach if you can't test it directly experimentally. And on that note, I think with the development of the advanced metabolomic assays and measurements, automated screening platforms, maybe it's time to really dig in on this, as you alluded to, Pietro. I think maybe we have the tools here to directly test whether some of these both uh, stresses, uh, oxidative stresses can affect the sperm directly and spermatogenesis directly, as well as screening for uh, compounds that might be protective. So uh, I think it's really a, a bit of a black box. Intuitively, it makes sense, but in some cases it may do harm and there's a lot to learn. Uh, about whether it may help. Yeah, and I think that um, you know a lot of our patients will very commonly they want to do something that they can do to help. They're always asking, "Is there anything I can do?" And even if there's anything out there on the internet about taking antioxidants, patients are just they're going to do it. You know, you see patients every day. I'm sure Pietro that you talk to about well, you really don't need to spend all this money on this just because your prenatal says fertility boost or whatever on it. That doesn't mean you should spend two hundred dollars a month, like. So patients are still going to be taking this, but I do, I really like this paper, how it challenges this and how we really need to start thinking more and more critically of this subject. All right. Well, in the world's largest pivot, we're going to go from two sperm articles to retain products of conception or early pregnancy loss, which is really what happens when sperm does its job correctly. It fertilizes and implants and then the rest of the body takes over. I have an article from FNS Reports entitled Hysteroscopic Resection for Management of Early Pregnancy Loss by Dr. Stacy Young and Chuck Miller. I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with how we manage early pregnancy loss. We have the expectant management option where just wait and let the body do its thing. The medical option where if you're doing it the right way, it's a combination of MIFI and MISO. And then finally, the surgical option. And really, the surgical option is what we've been doing for quite a, a long time, but in a very kind of consistent and now I think increasingly old-fashioned way where we take a curette, be it sharp or plastic, and introduce it past the cervix into the uterus and manage an early pregnancy via suction or, or sharp curettage with or without having an ultrasound to help give us a little bit of vision to what we're doing. Problem is that this is a blind procedure. In 2022, one of the most common procedures that we as women health providers perform is a blind procedure. And there has to be something better. And I think over the last couple of years or so, as we've had kind of the technologic improvement, we've started to see people reevaluate this important surgical step. So the authors of this paper, what they did is they presented a case report, and then also reviewed the literature and what's been published on using hysteroscopic tissue morselation as a management strategy for early pregnancy loss. So why does this make sense? So the, the main reason is that you're directly visualizing the pregnancy. So you introduce a hysteroscope past the cervix into the uterus, you see the tissue that you're about to resect, and be it with a hysteroscopic morselator or the cold loop of a resectoscope, you're able to gently tease that tissue out, 
and effectively ensure that you have removed all the retained products. You've minimized damage to that basalis there that we know when we do damage can cause intrauterine adhesions and can become problematic for some patients. And the more DNCs you do, the higher that risk of intrauterine adhesions. The number that I always see thrown around is 20% rate after the first DNC, but climbs to 30 to 40% after three or more DNCs. And for a lot of our patients, they sometimes need more than one DNC, especially on their kind of fertility journey. Um, so I really like this paper because one, it introduces this concept that a lot of people are a little less familiar with. I know I've been hearing about this now for the last couple of years, and I, I really like the idea of it. I want to tell you a little bit about the specific case that they presented. So this was a 33-year-old woman, G4P1, had a history of two prior first trimester DNCs for missed ABs, and she was presenting with her third missed AB at six weeks. And this center is a center that I think is um, kind of very progressive in how they choose to manage these things. And they've been really doing a lot of the hysteroscopic tissue morselation for early pregnancy. And they talk about some of the things that they do ahead of the procedure, which I thought were um, unique and sometimes different than maybe what Blake or I do. So they would prescribe 200 milligrams of doxycycline perioperatively. They would use 10 cc's of dilute vasopressin into the cervix to help minimize the blood loss. And then they would also give a gram of TXA uh, periprocedurally. And then once kind of all those things were on board, they would introduce their hysteroscope, visualize the tissue. And here, I think they were using the TrueClear system would just directly visualize the morselation and evacuation of all of that tissue, which is the standard classic way of, of performing this maneuver. The cool part about this paper is that they review what's been published. And there's a lot more published than I think I realized. I, I thought this was a lot newer than it actually is, but we're kind of now in the systematic review stage of, of, of this being a thing. So they highlight a couple of reasons why this may be better than DNC, aside from the obvious, probably lower risk of adhesions, lower risk of retained products of conception. So the three big ones. One, it may improve your ability to do genetic testing. So we know that about half of losses are a result of chromosome abnormalities and getting tissue for either a karyotype or a microarray is important, but oftentimes we find ourselves contaminating the tissue that we get with maternal tissue and having an inadequate or insufficient or confusing read on our um, POC testing. So it appears that hysteroscopic resection may minimize this by just getting the tissue that you think is fetal in origin and leaving that maternal decidual tissue behind. Second, there is the ability to directly visualize the pregnancy. And if you open up the sac, there's a really nice video accompanying this article where you can see the, the fetus and you can assess it for morphologic features. You know, a lot of REIs aren't trained in this, but it's not hard to see a couple of standard images of what things should look like at different gestations and directly visualize the fetus and say, huh, there's a limb discrepancy here. There's an issue with the spinal cord development, the size of the head. Um, there are funny things here that are pointing to something that may warrant further evaluation. So I thought that was cool. And then finally, it gives you the ability to fix things on the spot. So if you notice while you're doing this direct visualization evacuation of this pregnancy and you see a submucosal fibroid, you see a polyp, you see a small septum, these are all things that you can concurrently manage and improve the kind of the efficiency and the patient experience which I think is fabulous. I know I plan on offering this as I transition to attending hood later in the fall. And I think there's a lot of research to be done to really prove these claims. And is it in fact better at these things? But I really like the idea of it. Blake, have you ever performed this procedure? Do your partners perform this kind of procedure? Is this something that you're like, hopefully like many of our listeners hearing about for the first time? We don't. And I find it very interesting. I, uh, I'm just looking, I, somehow I'd missed the fact that there's a video, but I'm very interested because a lot of what I was thinking of as I was reading this is 
how can you see anything? Is there not a lot of blood uh, when you do this? And so I'm, I'm intrigued to know that that's not the case, but from what you're describing, it sounds like it was a very uh, interesting procedure. So, but we don't routinely offer this or we don't ever offer it because I, I haven't heard of it, but I think it's very interesting. And I really like how it's a, a new angle to offer something to our patients. And although when we, we typically will do ultrasound guided DNCs or suction DNCs for the patients that do elect to go to them or have failed medication um, treatment, for example. And even though the risk of scar tissue is quite low, you, you don't see it very commonly, especially if you're doing ultrasound guided, but I think that this still is a, a great tool to have in your pocket. And I'm definitely interested. Dylan, how do you manage your DNCs as a PhD <laughs> uh, biologist? Uh, I'm still I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, but I, I, in reading the paper, I, I, I have a question for you guys. Obviously, I, I'm a nace to this, but just looking at the numbers, I have you know you, you talk about the the benefits, and I'm just wondering how, how many. What's the economy of that benefit? Obviously, the, the hysteroscopy is a bit more expensive, but even beyond that, um, I'm having trouble understanding the the scope of the the, the group of patients that are going to be appropriate for this. I saw in the paper, they mentioned only 1% of surgically managed cases uh, following early pregnancy loss result in, in retained products, 1%. I mean, if that's right, I'm, I'm confused. Is the hysteroscopy being better than the DNC? Um, is that getting ahead of it so that, you know, you could catch that 1%. It seems like the number needed to treat there would be very high to make this economical. What, what do you think about that? To me, the biggest bang for the buck here is not to eliminate, go from 1% to 0% retained products. For me, it's really identifying the patient population that stands to benefit the most from direct visualization and minimal trauma to the cavity. So patients who have already proven that they have a history of intrauterine adhesion formation. Patients who go into that pregnancy loss with a thin lining, who we all know are a perfect setup for having adhesions after in uterine instrumentation. To me, this kind of speaks to the broader theme that I'm really interested in is risk reduction in what we do in reproductive medicine. I think this is a potential for risk reduction for a select group of patients. I don't think this is a blanket everyone should have their early pregnancy loss managed like this, but in the patient who having tissue is really important in making sure that tissue is not contaminated, this may be a better strategy. Really reducing the risk of intrauterine adhesion formation knowing a priori that this patient also has intrauterine pathology and you have the opportunity to manage the pregnancy loss and treat the pregnancy loss in one go. That's another great patient for this. So to me, it's really about identifying strict criteria and who are the subgroups that stand to benefit the most, not a broad application of the technology. Well, you sold me, Pietro. It's all hysteroscopy for me from now on in. Yeah, and I suppose too, this could be uh, something nice to have in your back pocket if a patient is further along after, for example, doing IVF and someone who might be more prone to failing medical management and someone who you already are going to be considering, I probably need to repeat a saline sonogram on this patient anyways, uh, because she's so far along and having a loss and your concern for retained products are going to be higher. So in one, uh, one swoop 
get it all do the hysteroscopy and ensure everything's gone before starting the next cycle. So uh, certainly could see how it have potential benefits. So very interesting. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today, gents. It's always a pleasure to be back with you. Um, this episode will be released uh, later in the month of May, and we'll look forward to being back with you in the month of June. As always, you can listen to this podcast episode wherever you're getting your current podcast, as well as the FNS on air episode where we review the table of contents for the FNS main journal. You can continue to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and now LinkedIn um, as part of the fertility and sterility social media presence. It's great to be back with all of you guys, and we'll see each other next month. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility On Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect the Fertility and Sterility family of journals or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.